Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is December the 21st, and we're edging towards Christmas and the new year. Uh, Last week, uh, in the last show, we had Evan Osnos, the author of Joe Biden, on the show, talking about... uh, amongst other things, whether or not Biden is the new Brezhnev. In other words, whether Biden, as this rather old character, is presiding over the the end of the American empire. We talked about Biden as uh, the American uh, Brezhnev. uh, And it brought to mind another another show we did earlier this year in which Harold James, the Princeton historian, compared the dying, the supposed dying days of American democracy to the dying days of the Soviet Union. So this comparison with uh, Russia and with the Soviet Union is a resonant, pregnant one. It's one that writers and thinkers have come back to many times in the past. Uh, My guest on the show today, uh, Rod uh, Dreyer, has another illusion or allusion to draw between the current state of the United States and uh, and Russia. Uh, but rather than thinking about the end of the Soviet Union, uh, Dreyer's new book, uh, Live Not By Lies, suggests in some ways that Biden and the current, maybe not so much Biden, but the current culture in America is a return to the dying days of the, uh, of the, of the czarist empire in Russia, late 19th, early 20th century. Biden might not be uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, but he may be an example of the kind of corrupt, weak, liberal aristocracy that ruled the Tsarist empire at the end of the 19th century. Uh, Rod, am I over-dramatizing this? Or are there comparisons between America today and 2020 and Russia at the end of the 19th century? There are actually good comparisons, Andrew, and it's shocking to some people to hear this, but I think it's important for Americans to understand where we are and how fragile our democracy is. The uh, main comparison I would draw between now and Russia at the end of the 19th century is a, a radical loss of faith in institutions. This was the case in Tsarist Russia. It didn't really come forward until 1891-92, when there was a massive flood in Russia. Uh, Lots of people died. There was starvation. And the Tsarist regime could not handle it. It was incompetent to handle it. That made the middle classes uh, come to think that maybe the Marxists, who had been agitating for decades against the Tsar, maybe the Marxists had something. And uh, they, they had something to say. And so this is where it really began to take off. And of course, in, within 20 years, the Tsar was no more and the Bolsheviks were ruling the country because people initially lost faith in their institutions. Rod, there's a, there's a, there's a rich tradition of using the history of the Tsarist empire as a 
a moral lesson, a metaphor for us moderns. Um, Richard Pipes uh, did it very well. My old teacher at Berkeley, Martin Malia, also did it. Is your book part of this tradition of seeing the crisis in, in Russia and Eastern Europe generally in moral terms and the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Revolution as the moral catastrophe of the 20th century? Well, I think the moral catastrophe of the 20th century would be the rise of totalitarianism, both in the Soviet Union and in Germany. I, I'm proud to be considered, my book to be considered part of the tradition of uh, Pipes and Melia. But I, I think that one of the things I try to do in the book is use Hannah Arendt as a guide to understanding the times we're in now. In 1951, she published her landmark book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, in which she looked back at the Nazi regime and also the Bolshevik regime and tried to understand what it was about Germany and Russia that prepared the way for those two very different but also quite similar forms of totalitarianism. The main thing that Arendt found was that radical loneliness and alienation from institutions uh, those were the keys that allowed Hitler and the Bolsheviks to rise, uh, as well as the ideologization, I guess you can say, of society, where people began, uh, both on the left and the right, began to seek more after things that made them feel good and made them get, have a sense of belonging than things that were true. I think all these things we see happening right now in our decaying liberal democracy. Um. Well, speaking of both Joe Biden and Hannah Arendt, uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with that moment uh, 40 years ago when Joe Biden wrote to Hannah Arendt. He wrote to her in response to her critique of American presidents lying. The crisis for Arendt and for, for Biden in many ways 40 years ago was the culture of dishonesty in the American public sphere, particularly with the presidency. Would you share Biden and Arendt's concerns with honesty? Uh, earlier this year, we also had Eric Alterman on the show talking about his new book, Lying in State, a tradition, of course, of American lying presidents reaching its, and I, I choose this word carefully, climax with the current president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that one can't look at this current presidency and this current president without being incredibly alarmed by how easily people are willing to surrender themselves to lies that make them feel good. I'm someone who who writes from the political and cultural right, and I have criticized the willingness of people on the left to buy into uh, woke progressive lies that satisfy them ideologically but may not have much to do with reality. But now we've seen, certainly since the uh, the election, we've seen this thing take off uh, like a like a fever on the right, and uh, we're finding it. I'm finding my own people, so to speak, conservatives, unwilling to accept the idea that that Trump lost the election and unwilling to accept the authority of of the courts and of the constitutional uh, the constitutional institutions that are there to decide these questions for us. It's a profoundly dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. Hannah Arendt said herself that when a people comes to prefer uh, pleasing lies to difficult truths, 
then they are ripe for totalitarianism. I've been seeing it come from the left, but now I, if I had to rewrite the book again, I would add a chapter on how people on the right have surrendered their own judgment for the sake of ideology. Rod, we also had, we have everyone on this show. So uh, if, if you're anyone, you have to be on this show. That's why we have <laughs> you on it. Uh, we had the excellent in, uh, uh, British intellectual historian Edmund Fawcett on the show talking about his 2020 book, Conservatism. It's a wonderful read. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, he, and, and you position yourself and you're clearly on the right, you're a conservative. Uh, he, he talks in his history of conservatism about the founding conservative triangle of Burke, de Maistre and de Chateaubriand. Where do you position yourself in that triangle? Are you Burkean or are you more in the, 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 the French nostalgic conservative tradition? I've tended to think of myself as a Burkean. Um, I, I am a religious conservative primarily, so you would think that I would go with uh, de Maistre. But I'm not a Catholic, and uh, some of my friends are Catholic integralists. They would like to see some sort of fusing of church and state. I don't think that is either possible or desirable in our post-Christian society. So uh, I, I believe that we we have to evolve. I mean, there's, there's a great line from, I think this may be Burke. He said that, a, yeah, in fact, it is Burke. He said that a, a state without the means to change is without the means for its own preservation. I think that's very wise. And uh, though I am much more to the right than than many Americans today, I believe that we do live in a pluralist democracy and we have to find some way to make this change to a post-religious society without accepting um, uh, sort of um, persecution of Christians and other religious dissenters that I think many on the left would be happy to see, see come along. I, I think that it can be managed but uh, not if we give ourselves over both left and right to these passions that are running rampant through society right now. Rod, are you a chess player? I'm not. Not, not a very good one. I know how to play, but uh, I'm pretty bad at it. Well, Edmund Fawcett has a wonderful f chess metaphor, and you don't have to be an expert chess player to appreciate it. And I think you brought up the dilemma and opportunity for conservatives today. He wrote, were politics chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black. They countered liberalism's opening moves. And of course, this was 200 years ago. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity. For the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. Fawcett is, of course, right about modern conservatism in its ability to master modernity. Um, in your book, in your new book, Live Not By Lies, are you suggesting that the conservatism needs to rediscover a tradition of Christian dissidence? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. If we're going to survive as uh, as believers in this society, what, what we're seeing now is the end of any kind of conservatism within the liberal tradition the classically liberal tradition. And what's happened is uh, Patrick Deneen, the uh, Notre Dame political theorist, he has written quite well about this. He says that liberalism has won, but, but it has also failed. In other words, by having broken down society into, uh, into a, a place where 
it's fit for expressive liberalism. In other words, for the individual to come out and, and be unencumbered by any sort of restraints. That's where we are now. This is where a lot of conservatives have actually, uh, over the years, through by looking at the economy, they've endorsed this way of living. And so now we have nothing to fall back on. Uh, I fear that we have no, in this society, we have no respect or little respect for religious liberty and as we become more and more secular. And that if conservatives are going, and conservative Christians are going to preserve our way of life, then we are going to have to adapt uh, adopt a more monastic way of living, frankly, and be prepared to be hated and be prepared to be dissidents and to suffer for the things we really believe, if that's the only way to survive. Oh, monasticism, Rod. Uh, that's uh, an exciting, an, an exciting opportunity for certain types of ascetics of monastics. We had on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago a brilliant writer, Timothy Egan, who wrote about his new book, "A Pilgrimage to Eternity," from Canterbury to Rome in search of a faith. Like you, uh, well, Egan is is on the left, but he's a lapsed Catholic, and he went to. He, he walked in many ways from Canterbury to Rome to rediscover faith. So he uses Western Europe as a backdrop, but a, a historical Western Europe, a Western Europe of the Middle Ages to rediscover faith. My sense about your book, Rod, is you go eastward. Your book, mm. Live Not By Lies, is an attempt to rediscover a Christian conservative political tradition in the 21st century from the 20th century example of Eastern Europe. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. And it is a sequel to my 2017 book called The Benedict Option, in which I drawing on the, the teaching of Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, I talk about how Christians in the 21st century need to go back to look at the example of the early Benedictine monks. Not that we are all supposed to head for the monastery. We're lay Christians. We're not meant to be hidden away. But we do need to rediscover a much more and disciplined form of faith. In Live Not By Lies, uh, I talk about the immediate challenges that are coming up on Christians in this post-Christian society and turn not to the monks, but to, as you say, Christian dissidents, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants and mostly uh, post-Second World War dissidents, particularly in East Central Europe, in Slovakia. That's right. And the one thing that I heard from all of them that I interviewed in Russia and in the uh, former Soviet satellite countries was that Christians have to be prepared to suffer for the truth. And this is something that is Physically, so angry. emotionally, do they need a good, uh, you know, a physical wake up? Is this uh, going to prison, torture? Yeah, well, one hopes not, but we have to be prepared for anything. I remember standing, Andrew, on the street in Moscow near the Kremlin after spending two hours interviewing an elderly Russian Baptist pastor and uh, about his experience. And he told me, standing in the snow, he said, you have to go back to your country and tell the church that they must be ready to suffer. If they're not willing to suffer... suffer for what, though? Uh, very briefly, Rod, what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? At the beginning of your book, you... Uh, and, and, and you talk about the importance of remembering, of not losing a tradition. You, you use the work of Kundera, of course, who is the, the master of forgetting and memory in, in, in 20th century East Central Europe. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, but you go back, you, the, the example you use in the introduction to your book is an event at an Indiana pizza shop. Right. Um, is this what people, this is what Christians need to suffer over? Well, the, the Indiana pizza shop story is just symbolic of the way that religious liberty has come to mean very little in this country and as, as we've, we are becoming post-Christian. And uh, I think that, broadly speaking, Christians need to be prepared to suffer the loss of job and even the loss of liberty for the sake of being faithful to Jesus Christ. Back in the 1960s, the black pastors who led the civil rights movement, they suffered for what they knew to be true. And I think that there will be many challenges to come in the future, especially from big technology uh, that will require Christians to remember who we are and remember what makes us Christian. Uh, and if that means that we can't participate in middle-class bourgeois professional society, so be it. It's interesting, Rob, that you bring up um, the threat of big tech. We had uh, Shoshana Zuboff on the show a couple of years ago now, who's, of course, politically on the left, very different from you, talking about her new book, or the, at the time, her new book, Surveillance Capitalism. But surveillance capitalism pervades your argument, too. You're very fearful of, of, of Silicon Valley. Uh, you have the example of PayPal, one of Silicon Valley's giant tech companies. You say, to be sure, being kicked off social media isn't like being sent to Siberia. Uh, but companies like PayPal have used the guidance of the far-left Southern Poverty Law Center to make it impossible for certain right-of-center individuals and organizations, including the mainstream Religious Liberty Law Advocates Alliance Defending Freedom, to use its services. Are you suggesting, Rod, that companies like PayPal are the new censors, the new communists, uh, the Bolsheviks of early 21st century America? Yes, actually I am. I, I do draw on Shoshana Zuboff because she's uh, quite insightful about the power that big tech exercises over freedom of discourse and frankly a freedom of, to be able to participate in the economy. I say in my book that what we're, we're facing in this country is not going to be Stalinism 2.0, but it's going to be something much more like the social credit system in China where the big tech will be able to marginalize dissenters, religious dissenters, political dissenters, and make it harder for us to participate in the economy if we don't conform uh, to- uh, will, will, will big tech allow these kinds of conversations, Rod, or will you and I be sent to digital Siberia? I think it's quite possible that we that we will only be able to have these conversations if we're willing to risk sanction. Uh, I think they will identify who the deplorable, problematic dissenters are and silence us for the common good. That's how they're going to frame it, for the common good, but it's not that at all. We also last week had the Yale, uh, the Yale physician, Nicholas Christakis, on the show talking about his new book on COVID, Apollo's Arrow. You use the Christakis case at, at Yale as another example of uh, what what has gone wrong in America mm -hmm. in terms of censorship, particularly on, on campuses. Why is the Christakis case so interesting and important? I'm glad you brought him up. Uh, he was at the center of what I think was a major turning point in American society for free speech uh, uh, on campus. In 2015, very briefly, his wife, Erica Christakis, both of them taught at Yale, uh, put out a, a letter to people at her college saying that it's not the business of Yale University to tell adult students what kind of costu Halloween costumes 
they can wear. The students went berserk, uh, accused her of being insensitive to them. And you can see on YouTube, Nicholas Christakis taking uh, taking on these students on the in the quadrangle there at Yale, trying to engage them in Socratic dialogue about their, their concerns. They were not having it. They screamed at him. They cursed at him. They sobbed. And of course, the Yale administration took the side of this, this mob of sobbing students against their own professor. I think that we have seen this sort of thing happen over and over again. But the fact that it was happening right there at a university where the American elites are trained is highly significant. This is what happened in Russia, too. Once the elites go over to the revolution, then the success of the revolution is all but assured. And I assume in Slovakia, too, after the, first, after the Second World War. Right, right. I dedicate the book to a Catholic priest named Tomislav Kolakovic, who came uh, escaping the Nazis. He came to Slovakia, warned his students in 1943 that the Soviets... What do you mean, escape the Nazis? He was doing underground anti-Nazi work in Zagreb, his home city in Croatia. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he ran and hid out in Slovakia, his mother's homeland, and uh, began teaching at a Catholic university there. He warned his students that, he said, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the communists are going to be ruling us. The first thing they're going to do is come after the church. So he began to prepare student groups for resistance and spread this across the country, this network of small groups preparing to be resistant as Catholics. The Catholic bishops warned him, Father Kolakovic, you're scaring people, you're being alarmist, but he knew what was coming. And sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell, Father Kolakovic's uh, underground network was the only thing that the church had. I wonder, Rob, whether you uh, yourself are guilty of a degree of forgetting. You idealize in your book post-war Slovakia, post-war Eastern Europe in particular, and the religious dissidents against uh, communism. Some weren't, of course, Kundera, Havel. Right. Uh, some were Catholic. Some were, so, some were Protestant in Eastern Germany. But I, I fear in your book there's an element of forgetting, a, a convenient element of forgetting, uh, you forget, for example, about Joseph Tiso, who ran Slovakia between 1939 and 1945. He was a Catholic priest. Um, uh, you also use the example of, uh, of, uh, of Croatia in, in this photo for people watching this. It's a photo of Archbishop Stepanic in, in, in of Zagreb uh, shaking hands with Anton Pavlovich, the Ustashi fascist leader. Another photo of Mussolini and Pope signing an accord. Um, is your book itself uh, conveniently forgetting the crimes, the terrible crimes of, East, uh, of, 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 uh, of the Catholics of East Central Europe, particularly this guy Tizo? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the ins and outs of Slovakian Catholic, Catholic history in the, in the war period, but essentially Tizo as a Catholic priest ran a not only a sympathetic Nazi regime in, in Slovakia, but sent tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of, of, of Slovakian Jews to their death in German concentration camps. Hmm. Well, certainly I would never uh, defend any of that. And uh, the history of Eastern Europe is very complex, as, as you just uh, alluded to. I cite the anti-communist resistance, though, because 
what these people were fighting was totalitarianism. It wasn't authoritarianism, which is what you just talked about. And this is something that can be quite bad, but it was totalitarianism. The difference is that uh, under authoritarianism, all the political power is concentrated at one leader. Tell a dead Jew in Auschwitz that it makes no difference whether or not it was authoritarianism or totalitarianism. They all still went to their death. So I'm not sure if that's a particularly convincing argument. Right. But but, but you don't... The other part of your book, which I have trouble with, is this philosophical assault on capitalism itself. You seem to be arguing that Contemporary 21st century capitalism has gone wrong. You suggest that the the do-good capitalists, people like Ronnie Cohen, who I had on my on my show, that the these these social movement capitalists are kind of leftist authoritarians. Is that really true? Aren't many contemporary capitalists who want to reform capitalism, aren't they actually doing good? And shouldn't we be encouraging them? Well, it depends on what what their cause is, you know. And I, I think that I, look, I'm a Christian. I believe that is Christianity compatible with capitalism, Rod? Not fully, no. And I believe that it is perfectly right for capitalism to be restrained when it works against the common good. Uh, what I object to, though, is capitalists who are bringing their progressive social beliefs. Uh, to the public square to the point of threatening, say, the state of Indiana over its Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The reason that act was repealed in 2015 and that led to the threats against the pizza parlor and so forth is because major uh, corporations like Apple, Salesforce, and others uh, ended up threatening the state economically if it didn't do what it wanted them to do. Similarly, in Poland, Andrew, when I was over there last year doing interviews for my book, I spoke to Polish Catholics who worked for uh, Polish branches of American and Western European multinationals who said that they were being compelled to participate in LGBT pride celebrations within their companies at the cost of doing their job. If they if they didn't participate and violate their conscience, they were going to lose their job. Uh, uh, Rod, are you sympathetic to this revival of authoritarianism, not totalitarianism, but authoritarianism in, in East Central Europe, in Hungary under Orban, uh, in Poland under Kapuscinski? Are you suggesting that this is an appropriate response to democracy? And would you appreciate an, an American version of Orban? Well, I, I don't know enough about the details of what's happening. Well, you know, well, you, but you've, you've written your book about East Central Europe, well, no. so you know a lot about East Europe. No, no, I was about to say that I don't know enough details about Orban specifically or, or the, the Law and Justice Party specifically to condemn or praise them. I like some of the things that Orban has done, but I don't know at all that that would be appropriate for right, America. Day, I mean, if, if, if this is the, the classic Trump, I'm not saying you're falling into the Trump trap, but this is the Trump trap, the, the Trump response on on on. Charleston. Oh, well, both sides have an argument. Shouldn't you, as a as an unavowed American Democrat, come out against people like Orban in East Central Europe who are clearly trying to dismantle their democracies? No, I, I don't necessarily agree with you at all there. I, I think that once one does travel over there and begin to hear, as, as I've done, and begin to ask lo- people about their experiences, the situation is a lot more complex than you read about in the American press. And it's certainly the case with Orban. Why is that? Why why is it more complex? Is the American press biased? 
Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Um, in the case of Orban, for example, I uh, when you talk to actual Hungarians about how small their country is and how much they feel threatened by multinational capitalists and by uh, open border immigration, you know, it's impossible not to have sympathy with him, even if I wouldn't necessarily vote for Orban. Uh, it's it's a much more complex situation than we hear about in the West. Well. I, I hope it is, uh, Rodman. We'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that. Your book, Live Not By Lies, is, is extremely interesting, provocative. I certainly didn't agree with all of it, but I found it a very good, erudite and extremely readable uh, book. So I strongly suggest people read that. What else, Rod? You're in your home in Baton Rouge in, in southern Louisiana mm -hmm. in these strange times in mid-December 2020. What else should people be reading to make sense of our unique moment in history, as every moment in history, of course, is unique. Well, there's a fascinating new book out by an academic named Carl Truman, T-R-U-E-M-A-N, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Truman goes through from the Enlightenment to the present day, talking about changes in society, changes in psychology, and so forth, to uh, help us understand how we get to expressive individualism as the summum bonum of of our common life and our political life. There's also a fantastic new novel called Alexandria by an English novelist, Paul Kingsnorth. He's an environmentalist who believes that all is lost, but in Alexandria, he writes about England 10,000 years in the future after an environmental collapse and how we reconstitute what it means to be human. I mean, it's a book, it's a science fiction book set in the future, but it's really about right here, right now and the meaning of the body. Well, Rod Dreyer, uh, the author of, uh, of, of this really interesting book, Live Not By Lies, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. You've done a wonderful job representing uh, what you think a manual for Christian dissidents should and can be. Um, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Healthy New Year, and I hope to have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. Likewise. Thank you, Andrew, and Merry Christmas to you as well. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.